Father, we thank you for that truth that our King has come and that he's also coming again. God, how we long for that day, Jesus, where we can see you face to face. Lord, where we can look at you and behold you. God, we thank you so much just for, for what you've done for us. God, we thank you for this morning. God, we ask that you just stir within us truths maybe we've heard before, but remind us of them. God, maybe things we haven't heard before. But Jesus, we ask that you would just take your rightful place as we, as we look at your authority, as we look at who you are. God, I ask that you would just have complete authority over our lives individually, that Jesus, this is your church. These are your people, God. God, we thank you so much that you've come. You've given us peace. You've set us free. God, let us walk now in confidence. Let us walk in boldness, Jesus. Jesus, we ask that um, this morning we could, be, we could just slow down and hear from you and that, God, you'd encourage hearts, that you just remind us, God, that you would just cut us to the heart, that you do surgery on our lives today, Jesus. We want to be more like you. We want to know you more. So, God, speak now. Move in this place. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you're here we thank you, God, that where we're gathered together in your name, Jesus, we, we know, we believe you're here. So we ask that you just speak and move in your wonderful name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Hey, everyone, good morning. Uh, do me a favor. Some of you know the drill. Meet someone new. Be friendly. Be outgoing. Do not wait for someone to go to you. You go to them. Say good morning to someone. All right. Once you've met someone, and only when you've met someone, you can go ahead and take a seat. All right, hey, so we are in the Gospel of Mark. We've been in the Gospel of Mark, as many of you know. We're in Mark chapter 11, and we're going to go into Mark chapter 12 today. So if you would, turn to Mark 11. Mark 11, and if you need a Bible, raise your hand. We would love to get you a Bible so you can follow along with us. We're, we are in Mark 11, finishing that chapter and getting into chapter 12 a little bit. Uh, as you guys are turning there, I'll share with you um, on Monday, I think it was, right? We had Tropical Storm Gordon come through. Um, and luckily our stuff was spared. But actually what happened is we have our stuff stored in this closet over here and the rain was so heavy that the roof caved in and it fell onto like our TVs and soundboard. And I, th I think we have a picture of like the space. But uh, so the water got onto some of our stuff and luckily, you know, Hector who works here and, and helps us out, set up every week, he pulled our stuff out and we set the stuff aside and uh, we dried it out. And so if something short circuits, you know it's because of Tropical Gordon. But luckily our stuff seems to be okay. Soundboard's working, praise God for that. But that was on Monday, so fun. Um, hey, but we're in Mark chapter 11. As I mentioned, we're basically taking the year just to go through the gospel of Mark and focus on the life and ministry of Jesus. And if you're with us last week, just want to catch you up to speed and review. Last week we saw Jesus' triumphal entry. So we saw Jesus coming into Jerusalem on a donkey, fulfilling prophecy, fulfilling scripture. On a donkey doesn't seem to be so triumphal, but it, but it was. We see Jesus even uh, go into the temple. He overturns tables. He, he curses a fig tree and it withers and dies. I feel like we saw another side of Jesus maybe we haven't seen before, uh, but it was so necessary. And here, here's the idea just to review. The fig tree, the temple, uh, the fig tree had leaves but no fruit. The temple ha had activity but no life. And so the fig tree was representing really what the temple was. There seems to be life, there seems to be leaves, but there's nothing really there. 
And, and, and I, uh, for us, as we talked about, how I just pray that it will not be us individually or us as a church, where there seems to be activity, there seems to be leaves, but where's the life? Where's the fruit coming from that? And so, again, we, we looked at it like another side of Jesus, the side of Jesus we should be thankful for and look at and study how he stands for truth and how he cares about holiness. And so we, we looked at that more last week. And today, uh, we are in something called like Passion Week of Jesus. So let me kind of remind you, Mark chapter 11 through 16 is focused on the last week of Jesus' earthly life. So more than a third of the book is dedicated to a week of Jesus' life. Just think about that. More of a third of the book is dedicated to the last week of Jesus' life. And we call this, you know, uh, the Passion or Passion Week. In Latin, like the idea is passio, just means suffering, suffering week. So we're looking at this, this last week of Jesus' life. So on Sunday, here's like, we literally know the, the order of days. On Sunday, he goes into Jerusalem, Palm Sunday on the donkey, celebrating him as Messiah. On Monday, he's overturning tables, casting, you know, cursing the fig tree. And we're going to look at Tuesday. And today in Tuesday of Passion Week, this is where, where Jesus really is being challenged by other authorities. And other authorities, doesn't, they don't like Jesus' authority. They have their, th- their authority being threatened. And when our authority is threatened, we like to fight back, right? Even for us, we feel like someone's challenging us and our authority, and I can make decisions, and who are you to tell me? They feel like their authority is being challenged and questioned, so they're going to Jesus questioning his authority. And so that's what we're going to look at today and study specifically today. And, and really the, the main thought today or the title today, you could simply say, is called k- Killing Authority. Killing Authority. Um, at all costs, they want to kill authority, and then they literally end up doing this. And so Jesus is going to speak about this, and please hear this. Because I think we're going to look and study a topic today that is not just for these religious leaders back then and, you know, they, they didn't like their authority being challenged. I think a lot of us don't like our authority being challenged. We don't like it when someone presses into us and challenges us and says, are you sure? Maybe there's another way of doing it. Like, we don't like that. We get defensive about it. We want to defend our right. We want to defend our authority. And so we see that they went to any extreme they could, they could go to to keep their authority. So I want to read, it's in Mark chapter 11, and we're going to read verse 27 all the way to chapter 12, verse 12. We're crossing chapter boundaries. I know, it's dangerous, right? You can't do that. Yes, you can. All right, so Mark chapter 11, verse 27. Let's just read this, this as a whole. We'll pray and look at this more in depth. So remember, this is Tuesday of Passion Week. This is Tuesday of Passion Week. Jesus' authority is being questioned at this point. Look at verse 27. Then they came again to Jerusalem, and as Jesus is walking in the temple, he goes back to the temple the next day after he just overturned their temple, overturned their tables. They're probably not happy about that. The chief priests and the scribes and the elders, this is the Sanhedrin, they came to him and they said to Jesus, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority to do these things? But Jesus answered and said to them, I will also ask you one question. <laughs> then answer me and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John... Was it from heaven or from men? Answer me. (laughs) And they reasoned among themselves, saying, if if we say from heaven, he will say, why then did you not believe him? But if we say from men, they feared the people, they feared the crowd, for all counted John to have been a prophet indeed. So they answered and said to Jesus, "Uh, we do not know. And Jesus answered and said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Chapter 12, verse 1. Now he's going to give a parable about what just happened here. And they're still there. Nothing's changed. All right, same scenario. Then he began to speak to them in parables. Jesus said, listen to this. I'm going to call this the parable of the tenants. Parable of the wicked tenants. A man planted a vineyard, and he set a hedge around it, and dug a place for the wine vat, and built a tower. And he leased it to vine dressers or tenants, and went into a far country. 
Now at vintage time, he sent a servant to the vine dressers that he might receive some of the fruit of the vineyard from the vine dressers. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent them another servant. And at him, they threw stones, wounded him in the head and sent him away shamefully treated. And again, he sent another servant, another messenger, and him they killed. And many others beating some and killing some, therefore still having one son, his beloved he also sent him, he sent him to them last, saying, they will respect my son. But those vine dressers, those tenants said among themselves, this is the heir, come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and cast him out of the vineyard. That's interesting. Verse 9, therefore, what will the owner of the vine- vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine dressers, the tenants, and give the vineyard to others. Have you not even read this scripture, the stone which the builders rejected have become the chief cornerstone. And this was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they sought the chief priests, the scribes, the elders, the Sanhedrin. They sought to lay hands on him, but fearing the multitude, for they knew he had spoken the parable against them. So they left him and went away. Let's pray, and we'll look at this more in depth. Father, um, I know in my own life, I'm so guilty of this, of just fighting your authority or wanting you at various times to be authoritative but not not in ways that I don't like. Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for this parable. We thank you for this truth, God. That, God, you are the landowner. That, God, you own all of it. That this is yours. That we're just tenants here. And, God, help us not ever believe for a second that we are the owners. God, I just ask that you'd speak to our hearts. Lord, it's so freeing to know that we're not the owners. Lord, let this be um, something that frees us and and blesses us, God. God, I just ask that you'd speak to all of our hearts this morning. Help us understand what was going on in Jesus' time, but even just today, Lord, how we can apply this by your spirit today. So speak to us, we ask, in just your wonderful and powerful name. Amen. So last night, I was upstairs studying, getting ready for the message, and my son, Micah, who's three years old, he comes running upstairs, and he goes, Daddy, do you want to go on a walk with me and Mommy? And I'm like, sure, man, let's do it. Let's go on a walk. He goes, no, say yes, ma'am. And I'm like, say yes, ma'am. I'm like, no, like, no, like, let, yeah, let's go. Now, sometimes I'll, my wife will ask me a question. I'll be like, yes, ma'am. And I'm just like joking. I'll be like, yes, ma'am. So I say that. And I'm like, he goes, he goes, no, daddy, say yes, ma'am. I'm like, no, first of all, you're not a ma'am. And second of all, you're not in charge. You're not the boss. And so he asked me again, he goes, want to go on a walk? I'm like, yeah. He goes, say yes, ma'am. I'm like, yes, ma'am. So he ended up winning. Um, but I think a lot of us kind of have that same mindset. Maybe Micah used the wrong pronoun or maybe he used the wrong word, but a lot of us have this desire to be in charge. A lot of us want to have this weight. We want to feel authority. Like Micah, it's really, it is funny. He wants, at three years old, I don't have to teach him this. No one had ever tell kids, hey, here's how you talk back to your parents. Here's how you act like you're in charge. Like no one has to tell them that. From a very young age, they want, they want authority. They want to be in control. They want to be in charge. Micah, and it's something I got to, we got to try to break. Like all of his teachers are his friends. So he's talking about his friends, but he's talking about his teachers. We're like, no, they're your teacher. It's like my friends. I'm like, yeah, they like you, but they're your teacher. Like we're trying to teach him authority and respect right now. It is very difficult. Pray for kids ministry right now. Um, but it is one of those things for all of us. Like, what is it? Why do we struggle with authority? Why is it that we, just, we try so hard to fight authority? Why is it that we always criticize authority, no matter what it is, no matter who it is? What is in our hearts that think we would be better, or we would be a better authority or leader in some way? And there's really this within all of us at a very young age, and not just with men, but especially with God. 
And I want us to think about this, because we will fight our bosses, male or female, and their authority, question it, challenge it. I think even social media has, in many ways, made it just easy to be critical and criticize leaders and criticize this leader and this person. And, we, and in, in reality, we're, we, we like to question their authority because it makes us feel authoritative. We like to put them down because we feel something about it. And it's really cowardly, hiding behind a screen or putting people down in texts. And, and here's what we do see. We see that within the heart of every man and woman, and ch- like, there is this desire to want to be authoritative. Don't speak into my life. I know how to do it. I can do it better than you would tell me how to do it. And we see, again, from the very beginning, it's this way with God. The Bible actually says we are at war with God, that we are at enmity, at odds with God. Listen to this verse. It's Romans chapter 8, uh, verse 7. But Paul writes, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, listen, it cannot. It cannot. He goes, actually, the, the, the mind is, ho- is, is hostile to God. It is. It's, just, it's set on that. It's bent in that direction. It's, it's bent on the direction of just automatically showing hostility to God. And no one would like, ever really admit this at first. No one, like, even people are like, no, I'm pretty cool with God, but, like, in our heart of hearts, Romans 1 talks about how we suppress the truth. We suppress it. That we, won't, we don't want to acknowledge the fact that we are fighting against God. We don't, we don't want God to speak into my life. I don't want God to tell me what to believe or say or do. We hate that thought of authority over us. And in reality, it's, it's so freeing, but we want to fight it. Uh, there's a guy, I forgot, you know, it's hard to say his name, Aldous Huxley. Maybe you've heard of him, like an English writer, and he helped write the screenplay for Pride and Prejudice. Uh, he said this, and I thought it was spot on. He says, I didn't want the universe to have meaning. I want there not to be God, because I want to sleep with whoever I want to sleep with. And I think he's being really honest. Like, think about this quote. He's being incredibly honest. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want there to be a thought that I'm, I'm accountable to someone or something. I, I didn't want there to be meaning. I want to do whatever I want, wherever I wanted, with whoever I want. I didn't want there to be any sort of accountability, any sort of authority. And I, again, I think this is for a lot of us. I'll ask people sometimes, and maybe you've been, you, you are a skeptic, you've been a skeptic, you, we will still have those doubts and those questions in our heart, but some people are just asking questions, not for answers, but just to kind of start a fight. So if someone asks me a question about God or Jesus or the Bible, I'll ask and I'll say, listen, if I answer this question in a way that's intellectually satisfying to you, would, would you believe in Jesus? And the answer is going to be no. <laughs> Most of the time it's like, no, I'm not. Because it's really not, it's not an issue. It's not an issue of intellectual problems or whatever. It's more of this hard authority I don't want to submit to, I don't want to be accountable to. I think this is the greater issue. Here's what I want to point out so far in the Gospel of Mark. Mark is showing us that wherever Jesus goes, he has crazy and complete authority. I mean, from chapter 1, verse 1, he's, he's, he's like casting out demons. There's a storm. He speaks, and the, cor- the storm calms. He's speaking forgiveness over someone, and he's re- making them walk, bringing dead people back to life. Jesus is showing us he has authority over everything. That's what Mark is revealing to us. He has complete authority over everything, anyone, anytime. He has all authority. And for us, we don't mind the teachings mostly of Jesus about loving or love or loving our enemies. And some of us might not even mind the miracles of Jesus, but what we do mind and what we do get frustrated with is this idea that Jesus has complete authority over everything. That means he has authority over my life. So let me point this out. Um, I think that you and I, we like the idea that Jesus has all authority when it comes to forgiveness. I like that. I like the idea that Jesus has all authority when it comes to justifying me and making right before God. I love knowing that Jesus has all authority, but I, I do not, and we do not like the idea that Jesus has all authority to tell us what to do and how to live. That's where we draw the line. We like God's authority when it benefits us, but we struggle with God's authority when it comes to maybe changing our direction or our lifestyle or our habits or our routines. And we're like, no, you can have authority over those things, but not these things. 
and we know that Jesus has complete authority. So here's what I look at. As we, we talk about authority issues, and I, must, I don't want to ask, but if I was like, hey, who here struggles with authority? Um, since you're a child, raise your hand. Like, no, I know but there's a lot of us. But as we talk about this, here's what we're going to see. Just, we're going to break this section up that we just read into two main parts. One is this. Number one, we're going to see Jesus is going to be trapping the trappers. I love this about Jesus. He's going to be trapping the trappers. And then we're going to see him teaching the tenants. Teaching the tenants. The people he's speaking to, the religious leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, he's teaching the tenants. They are the tenants in the parable, and we'll look at that more in depth. In depth, But he's trapping the trapper. He's teaching the tenants. So I want us just to read again really quick. We're going to spend more on number two, but I want us to reread this idea of him trapping the trapper, all right? So let's look at verse 27 again. Mark 11, verse 27, what's happening? It says, Then they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders came to him, and they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority to do these things? Now, that is an understandable question. Like that, that is not like a, like a question like, how dare they ask Jesus this? Now, keep in mind, their, their perspective is this. Jesus just came into Jerusalem. He walks into our temple, and he overturns tables. Who gave you this right? Now, in reality, it's not their temple. In reality, this is Jesus' temple, obviously. But in their mind, like, if someone came into your house and started like, overturning tables in your house, like, um, who are you? Why are you coming to my house? Like, throwing tables over my house, like, right? Like, you don't have a right to do that. That's what it feels like to them. And so you have these, this, this, the scribes, the elders, the chief priests. This is the Sanhedrin. Other Gospels tell us that. This is the Sanhedrin. What's the Sanhedrin? Really, Israel itself was led by 71 really uh, Jewish males. 71 meaning the, the one was the high priest who kind of led the 70. So they had a lot of political and religious authority. I mean, if you're part of the 71, if you're part of the Sanhedrin, you had so much walking authority and power. People knew you. You were like almost a celebrity in a sense. Again, you had a religious in with Rome. You had a political in. You had that religious in, that social in. You're part of the Sanhedrin. They have so much authority, and they're going, who do you think you are, Jesus? Where do you get your authority? They're saying, we didn't give you this authority. We're the Sanhedrin. We didn't give you this authority, so where did you get this authority? And I honestly wonder if, in their mind, they're like trapping Jesus. Because Jesus could give an answer or response. And if it's not to their liking or it's not to the people's liking, it's like, well, we're going to kill him. He's a false prophet. He's someone who's acting on his own authority. He's not coming from our authority. So th- they're trying to use this as a way to obviously catch Jesus in a trap. And, I, and I, here's what I do see. Religious people do this a lot. They come with a question, but they really don't care about the answer. They're just trying to trap you. They're not looking for truth. They're just looking to trap you or harm you or, you know, we see this in blogs and we see this all over online, but they just have a question, but they don't really want an answer. But they're asking this so Jesus can hopefully answer wrong. And I love Jesus' response because they probably thought of this question for weeks and months. I like picture them gathering together. Okay, what's the question we can like have to trap Jesus? And Jesus has such a good response. He's like, dang it, he answered in like one second. Um, And Jesus' answer is classic. So let's read, what does Jesus say? Verse 29, Jesus answered and said to them, I will also ask you one question. Then answer me, and I will tell you uh, by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or from men? So simple. He says, answer me. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why then did you not believe him? But if we say from men, they feared the people, for all the, for all the people counted John to have been a prophet indeed. So they answered and said to Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus answered and said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. I love this. This is a classic Jewish rabbi thing. I'm going to answer your question with a question, right? Like that's Jesus' take on this. And he's trapping the trapper. 
we see that Jesus has a perfect response. Because think about this, and they even explain it. Like they, they talk it out like, oh my goodness, well, if we say that John is from heaven, because the people do believe that, then Jesus is going to go, well, then believe in me, convert, be a Christian. Or if we say, no, he's not, the people might hurt us or harm us. So like either be killed or be a Christian, we don't want either. <laughs> we don't want to be killed. We don't want to become a Christian. And they, they did what a religious cop-out is. They go, we don't know. We don't know. Jesus like, why well, can't answer you? And I wonder if the crowd chuckled like, <laughs> got him, Jesus. Like, I, I don't know how that like went. Like, so is this one question response? But they, they were trying to try, and here's, here's what we see, and here's what we got to point out. Again, please hear this, because this, this can happen to us too. We can be guilty of this, which is we're not so much concerned for truth. We're more concerned about keeping our authority. There, there's fear. There's fear of the people. Why aren't you following Jesus? Why aren't you believing in Jesus? Maybe there's some sort of fear. Fear of I don't want to lose what I have. Fear of I don't want the crowd to maybe view me a certain way. And then there's fear. There's a lot of times fear gets in the way of following Jesus, of believing in Jesus. I don't want to lose my position. I don't want to lose my authority. So I'm not concerned with truth. Truth is secondary to me. It's all about me keeping my authority and my power. I think this is the problem. There was not really a willing heart to really ask Jesus, are you the one sent from God? Like, there was not that. Now, I want to, I want to point this out. I thought this was funny. I was talking to a, a pastor friend of mine who um, he was like having lunch one day, and this would be so cool. He's having lunch one day with Ravi Zacharias. And you know, if you guys know Ravi Zacharias, he's just like probably one of the leading thinkers today for Christianity, and he's apologist, meaning he defends the faith. And he'll go to some major college campuses like Stanford or Oxford and around our country, different countries, and he'll just defend the faith. If you look at Ravi Zacharias on YouTube, you'll get sucked into this vortex of YouTube videos. And, like, I want to watch more and more. Like, I'm like, wow, two hours just flew by. All I've done is watch Ravi. This is weird. Um, but anyways, he's having like lunch one day with him, and he said Ravi shared the story how he was debating Richard Dawkins and. If you know Richard Dawkins, he wrote the book The God Delusion, and he's kind of the most notorious leading atheist today. And, and they're just having like a little debate, a little back and forth, a little Q&A. And I, I'll summarize the story. But basically, there's a question that's asked. Ravi proposes a great truth and has a great question. And then it goes to Richard Dawkins. And afterwards, Richard Dawkins goes to Ravi and goes, when you made that point and asked that question, he goes, I had no idea how to answer. He's like, I was so stumped, so I just started talking. I started talking until it sounded smart, and, I'm, and hopefully the crowd just believed it. He's like, but you, you got me there. And I thought that was such like an awesome like, insight. For him, it's maybe just a game. For, for Dawkins, you can say, at this point in time, is he ever really, really going to believe? If you showed him all the evidence, he's like, yeah, I believe now. I mean, this is where he has authority. This is where he has his money. This is where he has his influence. For him, at this point in time, it's not about truth anymore. It's not about discovering truth. It's not about wanting to know truth. It's something he wants to keep and attain. And this can be for us as well. We don't want to lose something in our lives. We don't want to give up something in our lives. We don't want to give Jesus his rightful position of authority. We want to, we want to still maintain it and hold on to it. And Jesus, he's just brilliant. They go, we got him trapped. And he goes, tell me, was it from heaven? Or was it from man? Tell me about John. And we don't want to answer. And then Jesus gives this parable, all right? And this is where I want to spend some more time on because we learn so much from the tenants. The wine dressers, I'm going to call them tenants because that's just, we don't say, I've never said that word. Uh, but these tenants, we learn so much from the wicked tenants and their relationship to others and, and just how that relates to us today. And so I want to look through this. So let's just read this parable. So we're going to look at number two now. We're going to see the t- um, number two, the teaching, the teaching the tenants, all right? Look at chapter 12, verse one. It says this. Then Jesus began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it, dug a place for the wine vat, and, and built a tower. And he leased it to vine dressers or tenants, and he went to a far country. Now at vintage time, he, he sent a servant to the vine dressers, the tenants, that he might receive some of the fruit of the vineyard from the tenants. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he, he the landowner, sent them a, he sent another servant 
And at him they threw stones, wounded him in the head, and sent him away shamefully treated. And again he sent another, and they, him they killed. And many others, beating some and killing some. Now, there's so much going on here historically and metaphorically, and so I'm like, I'm excited. I'm like, where do I begin? But here's the idea. Jesus is giving them this parable and he's invoking this Old Testament scripture that the, the Sanhedrin would have known. It's Isaiah chapter 5, verse 1 through 7. We're not going to read it, but you can, please go back and read Isaiah chapter 5, 1 through 7. Isaiah 5, 1 through 7 is, is a story of God speaking to Israel, and he basically calls them his, their vineyard, and their fruitless vineyard. And Jesus is invoking, he's pulling out the story, and they would have known this story. They would have memorized this story. Uh, this is an interesting, here's a couple verses from Isaiah 5, but it says, Chapter one, now let me sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. This is a song. For the, and then verse seven tells us, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. Here's what I'm trying to point out. So in Isaiah five, Isaiah has this prophecy through song. It's almost like this love song slash judgment song. If someone came up to you and said, hey, I wrote you a song. I wrote you a love song. You're like, oh my gosh, what's it called? It's called You're Unlovable and You're Going Down. You're like, what? Like, that's a terrible song. Like, why would you write me that? But they're singing this like song of judgment upon Israel who's supposed to be this vineyard that produces much fruit. Now, we know that the symbol of a vine or vineyard, it does speak of Israel. Verse 7 makes it really clear this is of Israel. And Jesus is using this parable to kind of pull out these emotions and feelings and expressions. And so let's just talk through this really quick. So in the first five verses, we got to like identify who's who in this. This is a parable. Jesus is speaking to them in parable. They know it's about them. They know it's negative. Maybe they don't connect all the dots, but maybe you read this and at first hand. It's a pretty simple parable, I think, to like to understand. So here's some of the characters. We'll just put this up here. Uh, first of all, we're going to see the landowner, the landowner, the father of the son. Obviously, he's God. All right, so God is a landowner. Jesus is trying to show from the very beginning, hey, all of it's God's. He's the landowner. He, he has it all. Everything's his. Know that everything, in, in the vi- everything belongs to him. And this is something for us. We got to like put ourselves in the story. Everything belongs to God. All of it's his. Everything, the, the, the wine press, the wine, the, the grapes, the fruit, all of it's his. See, even for us today, it's like, I know that everything's his. Your, your room, your dorm, your house, your apartment, your condo, all of it's his. All of it's his. Everything is his. He is the great landowner. And that's going to change how I use what I think is my things. It's going to change how I use my stuff. Because I realize I'm not the owner. I'm a tenant. I'm not the owner. I'm a steward. That changes a lot. But can I tell you also in this parable that he gives, he's also the father, right? He's not just the landowner, but he's the father who sends the son. And so I love how God just identifies with this over and over again. You know, I think it's about 16 times in the Old Testament, God will talk to Israel as a father. And we see that term father used more towards Israel. Over about, around or over 60 times in the New Testament. In the New Testament, God is referred to as a father. And I think that's, again, for us, that should make it more emotional. We should be drawn into that. Maybe for some of you, you didn't have a good father. You didn't have a good representation of a father. For you, that doesn't mean a lot. Like, father, I don't care. Fathers are terrible. You know, Psalm 2710, David says, even though my mother and father forsake me, the Lord will take care of me. And he's trying to remind us, no, we have, we have a father who's unlike any earthly father. And he's writing about, and there's, there's supposed to draw this like emotional part, heart to it. That God is a landowner, but he's God is also the father. That's how Jesus portrays him. Number two, we'll just walk through the characters again. Uh, we're going to see that the nation of Israel is the vineyard. The nation of Israel is the vineyard, all right? Um, so we see this in Isaiah chapter 5, as I mentioned. Uh, 
Um, it's actually really interesting. Um, on the temple doors and kind of on the temple walls, there would have been this, these beautiful, extravagant, like, grapes or vines, like, weaving around the temple, and there would have been, like, jewels. Like, this would have been worth a lot to see. So when, the, when Jews would walk in and see a vine with jewels, they go, that's us. We're supposed to be fruitful. We're supposed to be a blessing. We're supposed to prosper, like, and bless God. And they'd see this, like, just like for us as Americans. If we see a bald eagle, we're like, oh, the bald eagle, America. Right? If you're like Canadian, you see like a maple leaf, like, oh, hey, hey, that's us. You're right? Like, there's a side of it where, like, you realize this symbol, like, speaks of us and our identity. And for Israel, again, it's the vineyard, it's the vine, it's this idea. So God is like, I'm the owner. This vineyard is Israel, but also, really, you could say the vineyard is just the land. It's just God's. All of it's just God's. And number three, we'll keep going through the characters, where you see the religious leaders are the wicked tenants. And really, it's us too. <laughs> The religious leaders are the wicked tenants. God's like, this is all mine, but I'm setting up stewards. I'm setting up tenants. Like, you're going to run the property. You're trying to make a profit. You can live off it. You can benefit from it. But ultimately, the, the, the profits will ultimately go to me. The profits or the fail- failures or the successes, I'm the owner, it's going to go to me. And we got to see this. We got to see that we're the tenants. We'll look at that more in a second. But we see that God is telling, hey, there's tenants over the land. I've given it to you, the, the leaders of Israel, but you've been terrible tenants. You've been terrible people, terrible stewards over the land I've given you. You've been done it well. And this can be us too. The problem is it becomes us when we begin to think this is ours. And please hear that. The problem is when you and I think that we are no longer tenants, but we are owners. That is the problem. We'll talk more about that. And then lastly, we're going to see uh, the prophets are the servants. So the prophets in the Old Testament are the servants coming to give a message. So the, all the messengers saying, hey, we got a message. Can we get some of our prophet back? Like, this is, this is God's. Can we have a prophet? And they're beating them and stoning them and killing them. Those servants in the parable are the prophets we see throughout the Old Testament, and that's what he's showing us. So let's just look at this. I want to focus primarily on the tenants' relationships. All right. So the tenants' relationship to the father, the tenants' relationship to the servants or the messengers, and the tenants' relationship to the son. So let's just look at the tenants' relationship to the father really quick. The tenants' relationship to the father, if you would, or the tenants' relationship to the owner. Okay, so let's just be really clear. Because he's speaking to who? The scribes, the Pharisees, the elders, and he's saying, you're the tenants. God has given you this land. God has given you Israel. God has given you this people. You're supposed to lead them and love them and serve them, but you've done it selfishly. It's now about you. It's now about your gain. It's not about for God, and it's not how God we want to, we want to use what you've given us well for your glory. And again, here is the issue. The issue becomes when we begin as people to believe that we are no longer tenants but owners, and we have to hear that. All of us here have to hear that. I am not an owner of what God has given us. You're not an owner of what God has given you. You are a tenant. Everything God has given you, and really everything God has given you, your body, that is not yours but God's. 1 Corinthians 6 says that. You were bought at a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are his, which are his. Your body is not your own. Your mind is not your own. The way you think, maybe you're good, again, you're good at maybe making money or you're good at some sort of skill or you're, you're, you're smart in some way. That's not yours. God has given you that. All of it's his. You are a tenant and you are a steward. And the issue in life, honestly, is when I begin to believe it's me. I've done this. Look what I've done. I'm a good owner. This is my stuff. Don't tell me how to live my life. I'm the owner of my life. And this goes against really every like self-help kind of book where it says, you're the master of your ship. You know, you can track your own course. It's all about you and like, your decisions, what you make, what you do. And the Bible says, no, God is the owner and you are the tenant. God is the owner. It's all of it's his. 
all of it's his. Don't believe for a second. This is, can I tell you, where does anxieties come from? Where does depression come from? I honestly believe it's because we think we're the owners. It's so freeing once you realize, I'm not the owner. I'm a tenant. This is God's. And that is something that is incredibly freeing. You know what reminds us? You want to know what reminds us of the fact that we're tenants, not owners? I honestly believe tragedy and suffering reminds us we are not owners. And please hear that. Because when something tragic happens and it's out of your control, think about when something terrible happens, suffering. Think about this. When you suffer, when you lose something, when you're diagnosed with something, you realize, oh my gosh, I'm not in control. Oh my gosh, I don't have power and autonomy like I thought I did. God's like, exactly. So often it's tragedy, it's suffering, it's those things that God reminds us. It's funny, because people will use this argument. They're like, well, if there's a God, why am I suffering? If there's a God, why am I going through this? And to me, it's almost evidence there is a God. Because you're like, think, think about this. If you're really that owner of your own life and you're, you decide what happens to you, I mean, but then tragedy happens, doesn't it just show you that you're truly not the owner, that you're truly not in control like you might think you are? You see, this reminds us that we're not in control, that God is in complete control. And there's this idea, listen, when it comes to this tenant-owner relationship, Understand there's this idea of we have to take God at his word. We have to take God at his requests. So I'm not here to share my opinions, my thoughts. I have to take God at his word. My, my goal as a tenant is to bring my owner a profit. And yes, I can benefit from it. Yes, I can live off it. Yes, I can benefit from tending, you know, tending to the land. All of that is so true, but ultimately it's God's. You know, it is crazy. I feel like it's hard because I so want this to be ingrained in my son and our kids, our, our church at a young age, to realize you are not in control. And that is so freeing. Everything is God's. Everything is God's. When God's like, give back to me, it's like, it's his. It's his. Like, God, thank you I get to keep 90. Thank you that, you know, all this is yours and you let me just benefit so much from it. Like, there's, there's so much to this. But we see, we see this relationship between the tenant and the owner, and it's not, it's not good. And, and we're going to see what happens. So now let's look at, the, really quick, the, the relationship between the tenants and his relationship to the messengers. So what's happening here? Because think about this story. When I read this story, my first thought is, uh, why are you still sending messengers, right? Like, when you read the story, it's like, and then this messenger went, this servant went, and they beat him up. And then they stoned him, and he got hit in the head pretty bad. And then the next one died. And so some they killed, and some just suffered a lot, right? And you're like, why does this owner keep sending messengers? Why does he keep sending servants? Do you, like, read that and think that? Like, stop. Like, stop it. But here's what we're seeing, honestly, in this parable. Jesus is trying to make it really clear. Look at this relentless grace and mercy of God. That even though we're rejecting the messenger time and time again, God's like, I'll send you another, I'll send you another. I'm going to give you no excuse. I'll send you another, I'll send you another, I'll send you another. You kill them, you beat them, I'm going to send you another. We're seeing God's just relentless grace and pursuit. Jesus is really highlighting that. I think it is really, it's almost in a way that would be obnoxious to the people. Like, stop it. Stop sending messengers, landowner. This is like, one commentator wrote about this. He goes, this is the idiocy of grace. Grace just seems like idiotic. Like, grace doesn't make sense. Why, after time and time again, are they abusing them and you're still sending? And, and grace sometimes, I'm thankful, sometimes it just seems idiotic. You're like, God's grace is so, so much above me, so much further than I would have gone with people, so much further than what I would do. The verse that comes to mind, obviously, is 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. But what does he write? He says, the Lord, listen, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Do you hear that? This is your God. Your God's like, I'm going to send you a messenger time and time again because I'm patient. I'm long-suffering. And my will is that no one should perish, but all should come to repentance. So I'll send you, you can beat him up. I'll send you another. I'll send you another. And then we're going to see the conclusion of how he sends ultimately his son. But you, but you have to see that God's grace is just relentless in this. And, and let me just ask you guys really quick before we move on. I believe God does send messengers into our lives to wake us up. 
who have those messengers been for you and what's been your response to them? <laughs> when God has sent you a messenger, and whether that's a physical person, maybe it's a sermon, a podcast, maybe it's a parent, you know, do we treat those messengers the same way these tenants treated those messengers? You know, how do you treat those messengers? When someone comes to you and says, listen, I love you, and can I tell you really quick, do you know what the, me- do you know what the messenger's going? The, me- the messenger, and, and this is why it frustrates them, the messenger's going and saying, hey, this isn't yours, this is the landowner's. Hey, give it back to the true owner. And they're going, I don't like you, <laughs> right? Like that's what's happening, and this happens to us. A messenger comes and says, your body, your life, your will, your desires, your mind, everything, it's God's. Use it for God. You're like, stop it. I'm the captain of my ship. I rule my life. How dare you talk to me this way? And we don't like that. The message is saying, this is not yours. This is not yours. You were bought at a price. Glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are his. It's not yours. Stop thinking you're in control. Stop thinking you're super autonomous. You're not. All of this is God. You are a tenant. And we go, no, how dare you? And we want to rise up and be that, that owner. And this is the message they didn't like. And please, again, please hear this. If there's someone in your life speaking truth into you, please hear it, receive it, submit to it. Let's learn from the mistake. Do you remember when, when Stephen's being Stephen in the book of Acts chapter 7, he's the first Christian to be martyred for Jesus. But in Acts 7, uh, Stephen gives this crazy long sermon, like long sermon, and at the end he goes, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the prophets and you've always resisted the Holy Spirit. You've always resisted God, the, the people God has sent you. Your fathers have killed them and you're going to kill them and they killed him. And Jesus is given this parable about how they're not owners and they're tenants and it makes them angry. They're, they're actually doing what he says is going to happen. He's actually thinking about this. Jesus is like, and they killed the son. They're like, that's right, they killed the son. They, killed the, they end up killing the son. I mean, they end up fulfilling this, this is a parable that ends up becoming like a prophecy. They, they're hearing this parable going, oh, how dare he do that? And they're like, let's kill him now. It's crazy. It's mind-blowing. And, but we're the same way. We're so numb to it. Someone comes to you and says, you've got to stop. You've got to stop acting like you're in charge of your life. Surrender your life to the one who's really in charge. It'll be so much better. Give your life to the true owner. You'll, you'll, you'll be freed from depression and anxiety like you haven't experienced before. You'll be content like you haven't experienced before. Surrender it over to him, and you're like, no, I can do this. Don't talk to me. I don't want to hear it. And this just leads to the downfall of so many. And I, I just think of James where he says, God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. For those who say, yes, you're right, God, I, I'm not the owner. I'm just a tenant. It's like, yes, yes. Please, listen, please be teachable to the messengers in your life. Please don't do what people have done time and time again and just kill the messenger. And you're like, I don't like you, Josiah. Don't shoot the messenger, right? Like that's, where the me- that's what I think where this came from. It's like, no, this is the message from the, this message is such good news because it is ultimately freeing. Because I, I, I have a really good landowner who gives me way more than I deserve, and it's all his. And I, there's something really freeing and empowering when you submit to that. So think about the tenant's relationship to the messengers. Now, here's like the most important one is the tenant's relationship to the son. The tenant's relationship to the son. And th- th- hear the reasoning, because it's, it's idiotic to me. Look at verse 6. Let's read this. Verse 6. Therefore, still having one son, his beloved, he also sent him to them last, saying, they will respect my son. But those vine dressers, those tenants said among themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and cast him out of the vineyard. Now I really want to know their, their thought. They're, some believe that maybe they thought the father died to so the son's coming. And they're like, oh, the father died to so the son's coming. So if we kill the son, the father's dead now. It's going to be ours. There's going to be no one left to take this rightful place. Maybe that's the thought. Maybe the thought is, hey, we kill the son. It's ours. I, I still don't really get this reasoning. Like, did they really think by killing the landowner's son, it's going to solve their problems? Did they really think if we kill the son, we will have complete control and authority over our lives? 
you know, a guy named David Garland wrote this, and I thought this was just good, so I'll read his thoughts. He says, do humans think, listen, do humans think by, that by erasing God from their lives, they can take control of their earthly and eternal destinies? Apparently so. Here's the utter foolishness of sinful rebellion against God. For some reason, we think, if I can just get rid of God, things will be good. I can run up my way. And do we not think there'll be repercussions for that? Do we not think that there'll be some sort of justice or judgment for that? Apparently so, he's saying. And there is this mindset, oh my gosh, the son's here. Let's kill him. All this will be ours. And this, look at the relationship between them and, and the son. And look at how the, the Bible does describe the son, his only son, his beloved son. It, it, this is obviously pointing back to Jesus. I think it's pointing, Mark here, I believe also, remember when he talks about John the Baptist baptizing Jesus in Mark chapter 1? We said this months ago, but in Mark 1, when Jesus was baptized and came out of the water, God the Father from seven, heaven said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. This is my beloved son. And it's pulling back to Jesus being that beloved son, the, the love son and the father sending the love son to the people. And I think of John 1.11. In John 1.11, it says, Jesus came to his own and his own received him not. You know, think about Joseph and his brothers and they literally have the same phrases being used from the story of Joseph, which is interesting. Like, come, let us kill him. Come, let us kill him. He went to his own and his own received him not. And there's so much here because they'd rather have their authority. They'd rather have their power. They'd rather think they're in control, and they think somehow this is helping their case. And ultimately, we're going to see the Father brings judgment. And we're going to see that, and we're going to see that description, but I want to read something that Spurgeon says, and I'm going to read two quotes from him today, but here's one. He says, if you reject him, listen, if you reject him, he answers you with tears. If you wound him, he bleeds out cleansing. If you kill him, he dies to redeem if you bury him, he rises again to bring resurrection. Jesus' love made manifest. They're going to kill him. They're going to cast him out of the vineyard. Jesus is crucified outside the city walls. They're going to kill him, cast him outside, and they're going to, listen, you can kill him, you can bury him, but he's just going to come back to redeem you. you. You know, we can do our worst to God, and God's like, I still can make the best out of this. <laughs> Think about what this shows, the, the, the evidence of this really quick. The evidence of the human heart is, the one time God's like, I give you something, we're like, I want this to be mine. And if God, the one time God gives like some sort of responsibility and stewardship, and then God's like, hey, I'm going to take my, I'm the true landowner. I, I, I truly own this all. And then his, we're not listening. So he sends his son and like right away we go, oh my gosh, God sent his son. Let's kill him. <laughs> that, that, is, that is our response to God. That is our response to God giving his best. And we can do our worst. And yet, even though we do our worst, God does his best. Even though we do our worst, God redeems. We kill, we bury, God just resurrects. God is just so relentless in his grace. And, and we have to hear this. And then Jesus uses something from Psalm 118 that is mind-blowing. But let's just read next about the relationship to the Son. Look at verse 9. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do? <laughs> he will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not even read this scripture? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone that this was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes and they sought to lay hands on him but feared the multitude for they knew he had spoken the parable against them so they left him and went away. So Jesus, here's what's really interesting by the way. Jesus is quoting from Psalm 118. If you were with us last week, that should be like, oh my gosh, that sounds familiar. Remember last week when Jesus was coming into Jerusalem on a donkey and they're going, Hosanna, Hosanna, the son of David. That's from Psalm 118. So days earlier, two days earlier, they're using Psalm 18. This is the Messiah. And in the same Psalm, they're saying they're rejecting the Messiah. And this is within two days. And, I, and generally, like they, I, don't, I don't know if they saw this. 
They're using Psalm 118 to say, Jesus is the Messiah, and Jesus is like, you're going to reject me. And he's saying that the stone which the builders, they've rejected it. Jesus is pulling from the same psalm that they're singing. And this story, this stone, just so I can read it again, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Here's the idea. So back then there was this thought, and this is kind of like a, a thought. It's not, it's not necessarily proven, but here's the thought. When Solomon was building the temple, and they're going, and you know, when you build a temple, and if you've been to Jerusalem, everything's like rock. Everything's built on a rock. It's not like little rock. It's like big rocks. It's like tractor trailer rocks. How they engineered this and moved this, I have no idea. Their genius is way like back then is awesome. But they they'd go to a rock quarry. They would dig out these rocks, and they'd come and they'd place the rocks and like puzzle pieces and build the temple. And they found this really weird, obscure rock, and they go, this rock doesn't fit anywhere. And they go, send it back to the quarry. And they send it back. And here's like the legend. Here's how the story goes. They're, as they're laying out the pieces and trying to build the temple, they're like, we don't have the cornerstone. Where is the chief? Cor- where is the stone that lines up all the other stones? Where is the stone that we base everything off of? Where is that? And they're like, oh my gosh, the oddball rock that we got rid of? That's the cornerstone. And Jesus is saying in, in this psalm, in Psalm 118, pulling from that psalm, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Jesus said, hey, that's me. I was the oddball that came to you. I came to you living in a homeless lifestyle, born of a virgin. I was the oddball. I was the one that people rejected, but I'm the chief cornerstone. I'm the stone which guides all other stones. I'm the stone in which you build off everything off of. And Jesus is using to say it speaks ultimately of me. And there's so many points here. And here's, here's why I want to just leave this thought with. Here's the big point. Everything begins with Jesus. Everything begins with Jesus being the chief cornerstone. That I'm going to sp- build my life and set up my life based off the fact that Jesus is what it's all about. That he's the cornerstone. That everything's going to be based off of him. If I don't base my life off of him, there's no temple, there's no building, there's no structure, it's going to fall apart. If I build my life off some other stone, off some other thing, it's not going to work. This oddball cornerstone which we've rejected is actually the chief cornerstone. And Jesus is saying, that's me. Build your life off of me. Build your everything Build your family, build your marriage, build everything off of me. Because if you don't, you're not going to have a temple. It's not going to be built correctly. It's not going to happen. We got rid of the chief cornerstone. You've, you've done this mistake before with Solomon. Don't make this mistake again. And please hear this. Please, everyone, myself, do not reject Jesus as the chief cornerstone. Do not reject Jesus as the thing you build your life off of. Please do not send him back. Please do not think he's an oddball. This does not fit. This does not work. I'm going to try something else. It will not work. See, he's saying, build your life off of Jesus, the chief cornerstone. You rejected him. You killed him. But guess what? He rose again. And don't make the mistake. Don't try to reject him again. Don't try to crucify Don't try to get rid of him again. Build your life off of him. Last Spurgeon quote. It's just so good. Sorry. But he says this. Listen. Please listen to this. He says, remember once more that if you do not hear the well-beloved Son of God, you've refused your last hope. He is God's ultimatum. Nothing remains when Christ is refused. No one else can be sent. Heaven itself contains no further messenger. If Christ is rejected, hope is rejected. He sent messenger after messenger after messenger. I'll send my son, trick the son, judgment. Spurgeon says he's the last hope. He's the last messenger. If you hear this and say, I still reject Jesus, there's not another messenger coming after Jesus. There's not someone else coming after saying, okay, I'll just help you out now. I'm the second Jesus. Like, no, that's not happening. He's the last, he's the last one sent. Listen, please hear this myself. Because Christians do this. It's not just non-believers. Christians reject Jesus. Christians say, I got it from here, Jesus. You're a good start. I got it from here. Build everything around him based off him. Let him be the center of everything. 
said, Jesus, you're going to be the cornerstone of everything. You're going you're to be how I build off everything in life. Everything I have is yours. You are the true owner. This is all of yours. I'm going to build my whole life off of yours and your kingdom. Amen? Please listen. Make Jesus your chief cornerstone. It's, it's all his anyways. I mean, we can reject person after person, prophet after prophet. God has sent his very best to us. I love Hebrews 1.1. It says, like, God, at these various times and in various ways, sent to us prophets of old, but in these last days, he sent to us his son. He sent to us the most precious thing he had. And know what we did? We killed him. And know what he did? He resurrected. He's like, nope, it's not going to be that easy. And listen, if you believe on him, you will be saved. Build your life off him. Guys, stop believing. I need to stop believing. I'm not the owner of my life. I'm not in control here. I'm not in charge here. Every time I think I am, I get depressed, I get, cra- I get anxious, things fall apart. I'm like, what's happening? Because I think I'm in charge right now. Realize that you're a tenant. Realize that all of this is God's. All of this is God's. Amen? The earth is the Lord's and the fullness of it. It's all his. Let's be good stewards of it. Let's be good tenants of it. Let's build from there. Let's say, Jesus, you were that chief cornerstone rejected, but not here. You're going to be our chief cornerstone. We're going to build off you individually and as a church. Amen? We need to spend some time in prayer and worship. We just need to with this. Guys, if you need prayer for anything... If you realize Jesus has not been your chief cornerstone, that you've built your life upon something else, please, when service is over, come find me or Mike or one of our leaders up here and get prayer. Please realize, like, I need, I need to make Jesus my everything. Please know this. As you're sitting in your seat right now and God's Spirit is speaking to you, if you just say, I'm done. I'm done being in charge. I'm done being in control. Can I tell you, God is so good. Can I tell you, all those who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you're in your seat and you go, I'm done. God, you're in control. Save me. Be that true owner. Be, take that rightful place. God's like, I hear that. As you're sitting in your seat right now, God can just be open your eyes to this truth. You're not in control. You're not in charge. Surrender it to Jesus and do that today. So let's just end, some, end with some prayer, some worship. And then I actually have something I want to share with you guys a little bit more in depth um, about what's going on future-wise and some things we're praying over and planning. So I'll just share like five, ten minutes uh, after this. All right, so let's pray. Father, we thank you so much. And uh, Lord, we just ask that our mind and our heart and our focus would just be on you, Jesus that, Lord, this is not mine, this is not anyone's. Jesus, this church is yours, our life is yours, that you are the chief cornerstone, that we want to build everything off of you and who you are. God, thank you for just being um, that, that gracious and crazy patient owner who sends person after person and messenger after messenger to speak to us. Thank you, God. We have not deserved that. Thank you that you're, you're long-suffering towards us. God, I know that your will is no one in this room should perish. That is your will. That no one in this room should perish. Jesus, I just pray and ask that people believe on you and make you the center of their lives in every way. We ask these things, Jesus, in your name. Amen.